Welcome, everyone, to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. A lot of you were asking me, where's the Steve Flink year in review? I was saving him for this, a decade in review with the one and only Steve Flink. Here it is. Always a good time. We welcome Steve Flink back on the program, writer for Tennis.com, Tennis Hall of Famer, author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Steve, pleasure to, to be with you again. Gil, it's nice to be back, and I guess we're going to look back on a, on a remarkable decade uh, gone by. Yes, that is the plan. It's, uh, it's going to be a daunting task. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I think we can handle it, especially you, uh, because I hear your, uh, your memory is, is legendary. Is, is that right? And I don't, I don't want to put you in a position where you've got to talk yourself up, but this is just what I've heard. It's it it, it's, it it comes in handy when it when it comes to recall of, of great tennis matches and tennis occasions and passions of the mind uh, and and tennis has been like the chief passion in my life but uh, but it didn't work in school so it the mind works in strange ways I appreciate you saying it and I think it is when in all seriousness one of the things that's helped me throughout my career is that it, because I've been able probably a little better than most to be able to instantly um, recollect certain things and points in matches. And you know that from our past discussions. And we all have our strengths, and I suppose that's mine. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, can you just give me an idea of, of how, like, what, what are, how, how well can you remember a match from, uh, let's say, I, I'm going to put you on the spot because this is, this is fun, if, if you don't mind. In 2012, sure. everyone remembers the final. Nadal Djokovic, it was an, an epic, epic match. We may discuss it later on. But if you asked me what were the semifinals, I can't remember. Can you? Oh, well, it depends. On, it depends. In, in most cases, yeah. In, in a lot of cases, I could, and some not necessarily. It would depend on how memorable they were. But obviously what, what ends up happening is you, the, the, in the epic final, just sort of wipes away. It, it almost obliterates what happened in the semis, particularly if the semis were not great. Now, I could give you an example where that doesn't happen, and that would be, say, 2011 as an example as we look back on the decade. And you had in, at the U.S. Open, you had a really hard fought in, and for scoreline sort of underrated match between Nadal and Djokovic that Djokovic won in four sets. But it so happened that in the semis, there was an, a, a more memorable match with Djokovic saving two match points in the semifinals, uh, coming from two sets down and saving two match points, down 5-3 in the fifth and beating Roger Federer. So it really would depend on the, um, just how uh, memorable those semifinals were. But in a lot of cases, I, I would remember the semis, not necessarily in as much detail. But when the semis, have, in some cases, have surpassed the finals, I certainly remember them. Right, absolutely. There are a couple cases there. Uh, so to me, the the major themes of the decade, at least at the top of the men's game, two things come to mind. You have the rise of Djokovic as the dominant force, and you have the persistence of Federer and Nadal through their their older, <laughs> the latter stages of their career. So let's start with the first one. Sure. I think it's pretty hard to argue against Djokovic as the player of the decade, I'll read some of the figures. He won 15 Grand Slams. He and won... Yeah, let me just interrupt you for a okay. second. And of course, he only has a career total of 16. So coming into the decade, he'd won one Australian back in 08. Yes. And then 15 since then, which is pretty remarkable. Go ahead now. Keep going with your stats. So 
four ATP finals on top of that and 29 Masters titles. Those are those are all tops for the decade. Sure. But what what really sticks out to me is the head-to-head against two of his chief rivals, Federer and Nadal, because coming into the decade, he was 5-9 and nine against Federer, 7-14 and 14 against Nadal. He had ground to make up, and he successfully made up the, that ground in both cases, now has, has winning records against both. And that was after Nadal added two more wins to make it 16-7, looking like there was no way at that stage you could believe that Djokovic could surpass him. Surpass him. And similar with Federer, yes, those are remarkable feats. Not to mention, we should add, uh, that he had five years at number one, and there were two years, including this past one, where he finished at number two narrowly. In 16, he was beaten by Andy Murray in the finals of the ATP finals in London, and that match was actually four number one for the year. And then, of course, this past year, had he been able to win in London, uh, which he, he didn't do, he didn't make it out of the round robin, he could have surpassed Nadal again. So five years at number one and a couple of really close calls at number two. Pretty, a pretty uh, stunning decade of achievement for Djokovic, and we, we're, we've got more, there's more to come from him. What do you think happened in those two rivalries, kind of one by one, where, where he made up ground, I think, against Nadal, uh, he he really found incredible success, kind of equaling his his shot tolerance and his fitness uh, heading into this decade. Where previously there was probably a deficit there, and Nadal was in a lot right. better shape. And yep. um, against against Federer, nothing nothing really comes to mind as as blatantly. What are your uh, thoughts with, on with Djokovic? No, you're right. You're right. It isn't is clear in the matchup. Well, okay, I would let's let's start with Djokovic and Nadal. I think. We saw signs from even before the decade began and in the earlier stages of Djokovic and Nadal that he seemed to be the one guy. Now, it later did change, interestingly, in recent years when Federer improved his backhand and he suddenly he was able in these last bunch of years against Nadal starting in 17 to uh, take away the, the enormous advantage Nadal had with the cross-court forehand, the heavy whirlwind topspin of Nadal bounding up high to Rogers back in. And that same shot bothered a lot of guys, a lot of the two-handed guys, too. They couldn't deal with it much better, but there were signs from early on that Djokovic could. And then as this decade progressed, we saw that just how well he could, he could neutralize Nadal's forehand with his two-hander, which was the best in the game. And not only that, he just with a better serve than Rafa and, uh, just an ability, I think, to not only beat him on offense, but to a superior defender. There were just a lot of ways that I think he he made life miserable for Rafa when he was at his best, and it was sort of encapsulated in that brilliant Australian Open performance this past year, where he just went right through Rafa in straight sets in one of the best matches of his career. And Nadal would acknowledge afterwards that when Djokovic plays like that, there really wasn't much that he could do to counter it. But then the other one, now we go to Djokovic Federer. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's not, there's no, uh, the, the beauty of that rivalry is that I don't think either one does have an, a, a, uh, any, a, a substantial kind of technical or tactical advantage. It, 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 the matchup is, is really great for both. They both hit the ball relatively flat of, of both sides. They each are great spot servers. Federer being the better volleyer for sure, but Djokovic improved a lot at the net. Djokovic with a better return. There's just so little that, that has separated them, which, of course, was again sort of symbolized by their Wimbledon final this past year. 
the epic that went to 13-12 in the fifth with Djokovic saving two match points again in that match, third time in his career that he's done that to Roger. So I just think you look at the at that one, and it's just really a matter of who can execute a little bit better on the day. Djokovic is a better defender, but Roger more capable on offense in some ways of sort of taking control of points and dictating them from early on. So they just so many ways they each can beat each other. But I do think uh, over time, Djokovic, who was uh, uh, maybe a little bit in awe of Roger at the start of his career, that that disappeared, uh-huh. and he it became really an imperative for him to feel like he could deal with Roger and also overcome the crowds. When he plays Rafa, the crowds like Rafa. They're he doesn't. Uh, they, they, they're they're fair to him when he plays Federer. The the Wimbledon audiences or the U.S. Open audiences, wherever he goes, the the crowds are just <laughs> impossibly <laughs> on his opponent's side. So he has uh-huh. he's had to deal with that as well. But I I think I guess not to belabor the point. I honestly think that the Djokovic Federer matches have been more enjoyable. How do you feel about it? I feel like. When we've seen Novak and Roger at their best playing a match like the Wimbledon final, it's actually more fun to watch than Djokovic versus Nadal, or even slightly more enjoyable to watch than Federer-Nadal. How do you feel about it? I feel that on quicker surfaces, I would agree with you, but on clay, I tend to favor the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry. That's a fair point. That's a fair point, but I again, I think that... They, 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 listen... Uh, we're, we're we're dealing with small distinctions here because mm-hmm. the, I I love the quality of the Nadal Joe and I think that the connoisseurs love to see Nadal Djokovic too, and uh, on any surface by the way. But you're right in on clay you're bringing in Rafa's obvious uh, obviously being such an unassailable clay court player, the greatest clay court player beyond dispute of all time with his twelve French Open titles. I I. And then Djokovic being so underrated on clay and trying to combat it. it, it, it is great fun to watch that. We, we could spend all day debating yes. this one, but it, to me, overall, if you took all the surfaces and you said which, one, which matchup would you most like to see, I think I would, I would choose Novak versus Roger. So we mentioned Djokovic, went through his numbers, but Federer and Nadal, uh, they, continued, they continued their success as well, which is something that at the beginning of the decade – we probably didn't think that here in 2019 we'd still be talking about Federer and Nadal as top three players in the world. Nadal, this decade, 13 Grand Slams, Federer 5, Nadal 20 Masters, Federer 12 Masters titles. Uh, so they've, they've continued to be really, really good. Federer is in his late 30s, Nadal is in his mid-30s. A lot of the time we're talking about it just as a fact that, that they've aged so gracefully. But when you start to delve into why, what are the answers that you come up with? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Nadal is 33 now, Roger's 38. If you had told Nadal uh, six, seven years ago that he was going to end this year at number one, he would have laughed. He would have literally laughed in your face, and he would have said, I don't even know if I'm going to be playing, much less be number one in the world. But what he's done is to pace himself. What he's done is to learn that when he's got these injuries, he better step aside for a while and, and uh, heal and be sure not to come back too soon. And what he also discovered is that he could come back and be very sharp pretty quickly. You take a tournament like the year-end finals, in London this year, and he got destroyed by Zarev in his first match back after a layoff in the fall, and 
after having been hurt in Paris, all these things that happened to him. And then the next thing you know, he's squeezing out victories over Medvedev and Sispidus, and that's Rafa now. He, he can recover very quickly, and he doesn't, he doesn't worry about the, uh, not being able to play for a while. So, and he's, he, the latter-day Nadal is much more aggressive. His serve is better. He can end points quicker. So I think he really has adapted beautifully to being in his 30s, and it's going to keep him going strong for a few more years. Federer, I think the secret there is that he's just got this unbelievably enduring hunger and thirst to perform. And I think anybody would appreciate the, the level, the, the, this almost ineffable uh, degree of support he gets from the crowds. It's got to be such an enormous lift to constantly perform in front of adoring audiences. He gets that, but more so it's his pride in still being as good as he is. And probably, I guess of the three, I would also say this, of the three, I think he, there's a purity about him in terms of how much he loves to play tennis. I guess I would say of the three, he, maybe he just loves actually hitting the tennis ball even more than Nadal or Djokovic, and that's saying something. But Roger, that and changing the rackets, so, you know, this racket yeah. change he made back in 14-15 when he went to the different frame. There's no doubt that that would led to the improved backhand, the topspin backhand that, is le- that, that eventually got him four wins over Rafa in 2017 and another one this year at Wimbledon, and now he's won altogether six of his last seven against Rafa. But the main reason for these recent victories has been that racket, and he stayed yep. in incredible shape. I have to say this, uh, Gil, he's a better player now. He was a better player in 2019 than he was in 2014 or 2015, by far. Agree. And I would never have believed I would say that. And those two years, he was in the finals of Wimbledon, and in 15, he was in the finals of Wimbledon and the Open. But he's decidedly better now. Now, what we don't know is how can he, going forward, does his body start breaking down a little more? He lost at the Open this year, in my mind. 90% of it was that his back went on him. Everybody knew he was struggling with it. He didn't talk about it too much, but it was very obvious. He left the court. You could see something was wrong, and that didn't linger. Where he's been fortunate is he has an injury like that, loses to Dimitrov primarily because of the back, and then a few weeks later he's okay. He's playing well in Labor Cup, and he keeps going through the rest of the year and continues to play well. So I think he's taken great care of himself, and he is passionate to keep performing and to stay at a high level. Plus, and now he's also going to go after the Connors record of 109 titles and Rogers closing in on, on I mean, I think in the, this year he's going to get very close. He'll maybe get within two or three of, of Jimmy, and then that might, that might keep him going another year just to try to break that record. So there, there's a multitude of reasons, but those are the ones that I would c- cite the most. I would add the, the fluidity of his movement, the way he moves. Oh, no doubt. The no, way you're he moves so around the You're right about court. that. No doubt about it. He's blessed with it. You know, it, it's much harder work for Djokovic and Nadal, and they have to really grind it out much more than Roger will ever have to do. And he has, like, he has probably a physique that was designed by God. I mean, it's, <laughs> you couldn't ask for more in terms of grace on a court and, and, and the ease. With, but it's still hard work, though. But he, it, it, makes, it makes getting injured less likely than either the other, guy, the, the, the other two. And it seems like it's the back is the most frequent, but even those no. injuries are few and far apart. So I, I agree with you. He, the fluidity of movement is, is one of his great attributes, and, and it, it, may, it may keep him going, Gillen, into his early 40s. I wouldn't be surprised. And I, when I say going, I mean still being in the range of the top five in the world.
Yeah, I also wonder if Federer's longevity has pushed Nadal forward because there have been so many instances where Nadal has suffered injuries and it really more or less would have given him the opening had he not been so motivated to to call it quits, to say I'm done. And if, if Roger Federer didn't exist and Nadal was way past 20 majors, you you have to wonder if his career would have ended shorter. Maybe it would have ended Already, but because you mean Rafa's has... career, you're talking about yes, now. Yes, yes, Rafa's career. Yeah. I, yeah, I wonder if Federer has. But, but has then, motivated of course, him. now you flip the coin, Gil, at this stage, and you say, okay, now what drives Rafa is he's one away from Roger. That's that's what it I'm took saying. Him so long to get within one, and he finally did it by winning that epic five setter U.S. Open final over Medvedev. So now that really drives him. And, he, and then we also don't know because Roger really doesn't give too much away on this count. How important is it to him to make sure that Rafa doesn't pass him and that Novak doesn't eventually pass him? He's very low-key and even-handed about it when he talks about it now, and we all are going to have great records, and he sort of looks at it as if he's not that competitive. But obviously he takes a lot of pride in having established the record. And when you're still out there, I mean, Pete Sampras left the game with 14, and, and you would have thought he was pretty safe. And in his case, he couldn't do anything about it once he left. These guys all passed him in major, and he wasn't out there being able to sort of counter it. And Federer still, that might spur him on, too, to think, because he knows this year, I mean, two match points at Wimbledon, so he was close. And it, uh, otherwise, he's had a rough couple of years at the majors, uh, you know, having won the first one there in 18 over Chilich in Australia, but nothing since. And uh, But I think he still believes he could win one or two more, and that will also be a key to whether Novak and eventually and Rafa maybe sooner could tie or surpass Roger. They're all pushing each other. They're all motivating each other to to keep going. And uh, we're the beneficia- beneficiaries as uh, some of the people who get to watch it happen. But let's go back to uh, to the decade theme and hit on a couple of superlatives maybe. Does any one match stand out as the best match we've seen in the last 10 years? Well, you know, I, I, it's funny, again, we get back to Djokovic being, seem, somehow he's, oh, he's the central player for whatever the reasons, for a variety of reasons. But I really see the two. I think the, 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 this, this was a standout, obviously, at Wimbledon, to have a fifth set tiebreaker being played at 12-all. It never had happened before in singles, and they, they had just instituted it this year, and didn't happen the whole tournament. It happens in the finals. Such a fitting way for them to conclude what was virtually a five-hour match, and 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 that was a very high level from both guys. And Federer showed no signs of fatigue at any stage, right up to the last point in that fifth set tiebreak. And then you had the other one that stands out, of course, the 2012 Australian, was Novak the defeating Rafa in from 4-2 down in the fifth. Nadal was serving actually. This gets back to my memory, 4-2, 30-15 in the fifth. And he, and he had a nice kind of open court, and Novak was sort of stranded up at the net, and Rafa had a pretty easy backhand pass down the line to give him 40-15 at 4-2 that could have carried him through the match, and he missed the pass wide. And uh, that was very disappointing to him. He challenged it. He, it was out. And eventually Novak came back and won the match in five hours and 53 minutes. And uh, that, that I think that level of play, I have to say, I think from beginning to end the level of play was slightly higher in – Djokovic Nadal in Australia, but the most absorbing was was to me was the Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final of, of uh, 
2019. What what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm kind of with you on that. Best quality of play. I always go back to that match in Australia. I think how they were able to push themselves physically, how the the level that they were at physically, and and the tennis to back it up, where both of them just refused to miss and were defending and defending and defending the the refusal to lose point in and point out was really jumping off the court to me and uh you you had in my opinion two champions and legends in their prime there but i would have to give the title of most pivotal match to that djokovic federer final that we saw this year yeah good assessment good assessment yeah no listen it was it was it was critical pivotal there are a lot of words we could use to describe it it would have been like the crowning moment Federer to finally beat these guys uh, back-to-back in a major, something he hadn't done. And, and to do it at this stage of his career, uh, you know, at that stage, he's not, he, hadn't, he was very, just shy of the 38th birthday. And, and uh, you know, that would have just been a phenomenal achievement to do that on his favorite court. Uh, but instead, Djokovic came away with that fifth crown. So those, those, those two matches were, were – and then, of course – some backups were, I think, those Federer and Djokovic semifinals at the U.S. Open back-to-back in 2010 and 11 when Novak saved the two match points both times were pretty outstanding as well. So we, we, we were spoiled. There were just so many pulsating clashes with this trio one way or another, and they, they kept lifting us up emotionally time and time again across the decade. Absolutely. You have the five-setter in 2017, Nadal Federer, the semifinal at the yeah, French, now that Nadal one, Djokovic. Let's, let's not forget that that was also 3-1 in the fifth for Nadal, and he had a point for 4-2 in the fifth where he had a forehand that he went behind Roger, and it looked like he had the point one, but it, unusually for Rafa, he didn't give himself enough net clearance. It, it clipped the net cord and went wide, and it was, was going to be an almost impossible point for Roger to win. And think if Rafa had gone to 4-2, he would have won. Great comeback, yeah. though, from Federer because he won the last five games from 1-3, and it was pretty spectacular stuff on his part, and highly unexpected. He had missed the second half of the previous year in 16 with his knee issues, and so to come back and win the Australian after being gone all that time was a phenomenal achievement, and Nadal had also had a difficult stretch as well, so that was a very memorable final, but I wouldn't put it on the level of these other matches we've just discussed, just a notch below. Yes. Very, you were going to mention another one, though. What else were you going to mention? Uh, Nadal Djokovic 2013 Roland Garros oh, semifinals. Beauty. Now, that was, again, you talk about semifinals. We had a very unmemorable, if I can invent that word, final between <laughs> Nadal and David Ferrer yeah. that year. Unfortunately. The, semif- the semifinal was a just and, and was a beauty. And, and Djokovic has never played better against Nadal on that court, even in the win that he had over him years later wasn't as impressive as this 13 semi. And, of course, it, he was up a break. He was 4-3 in the fifth, and he, he hit what was kind of a semi overhead and touched the net with his body and mm-hmm. lost the point. And eventually Rafa came back and won at 9-7. It was, it was a um, – that was really a beauty. That was almost as good as the Australian final. I'd say just yes. barely below it, but it was definitely the best clay court match they've, they've had. Have you noticed any trends in style of play in terms of – you know, evolution throughout this decade and in how the game is being played? I think that, I don't, I don't know if it was drastically different than the previous decade. I, I still think we're seeing, the, I still think the prototypes are, you know, the, you're going to, 
it's still built largely around superiority from the baseline, and I think the men are a little, have been a little bit more versatile in being able to get in. And I think I, there's an evolution. Nadal, for instance, I think is far more comfortable. He always had good, great technique on the volley, but now he's just much more uh, willing to, to, to come forward. And that's been a, nice to see. Djokovic, in turn, it's harder work for him. He's not as natural at the net as Nadal, but he'll come in on some very big points, like he did 11-all in the fifth against Federer on a break point when the match could have gotten away for the second time. The Federer had already served for it once and had the match points, and it's now break point down for Djokovic at 11-all. He, he hit a forehand down the line and made a delayed approach in. Federer didn't see him coming at first, and Novak was able to sort of uh, provoke a, a backhand slice pass that went just wide cross-court. He, too, has is, is become more capable, you know, in, in getting uh-huh. in. And then, I just, no, I think the evol- I, I don't. I didn't see a drastic change in the evolution of the game, other than the athletes just get better and better and better, and the technique as well. And it's very, very difficult for players to end points because the players are, have fewer and fewer weaknesses across the board. I think the points have, have become a bit shorter in, in the matches that we've discussed so heavily uh, it, so so far in the last uh, 20 and some minutes between Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. I do yeah, think... Yeah, that's true. I, that is true. And yeah. that's, that's, you know, that, that, that's Rafa's upping the ante with his aggression. Roger was always inclined to try to end the points a little sooner if he could, and he had the... the he was the most adept at doing that. Mm-hmm. And then Novak can turn on the offense when he needs it. You know, I mean, there was one match in Australia in the semifinals of the Australian 2016 uh, where he, he played. He won the first two sets, one and two, and it was just breathtaking the way he was actually hitting Federer off the court in a way that I've rarely seen him do. Now, I want to mention one more Djokovic-Federer match that's worthy of mention was the 2015 U.S. Open final. It wasn't on a level with these others, only four sets, but I've never seen that crowd made the Wimbledon crowd by comparison this year look look low-key. I mean, they were were just jumping out of their seats and fervently supporting Federer. And and Djokovic, I think, when his career is over, might cite that one in terms of overcoming a, a crowd there was nothing quite like that. And he said later that his hands were shaking at times. It was so difficult to deal with. Wow. And in terms of atmospherically, I don't think I ever experienced anything quite like that one because I've never seen the New York crowd, unless an American was performing, unless it was, yeah. say, an Andre Agassi, uh, get behind a player like they did Federer to, uh, you know, to what could have been the detriment of Djokovic, but he overcame it and won it in four sets. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'll, I'll have to, to go back. I... Yeah, go on YouTube. Yeah, I'd like, to, you I'd like full, to go back. You'll get the feel of it, though. You'll yeah. at least have a chance to get the, the, the feel of it. But I know, sure. I'm sure, if I, had a, if I had a chance to interview him when his career was over, that would, I would ask him about okay. that occasion and what it was like to... Because he's dealt with, as I mentioned earlier, so many times he's played Federer and had to, had to find a way to sort of combat the crowd in, in a quiet way. And he talked about it at Wimbledon this year, yes. how he had to... He was determined not to show any emotion, and you know he had this almost as a strategy that he had to go out there and be uh, totally controlled and keep his emotions completely under the vest. And uh, but that U.S. Open final was was remarkable in that regard. How about uh, tennis politics? There was some some infighting this this year, uh, some some resolutions, but all in all, things tend to be pretty stagnant and, and not a lot seems to change when it comes to the governing bodies in tennis. What, what would be your reflection 
on the last 10 years and, and what that means just for the current state of things in, uh, in tennis politics? Well, that's a good one. I mean, I, I think the, the ATP has gone through some serious changes in leadership periodically, but then this past year there was kind of, kind of an uproar. Djokovic was the... It was a leader, of course, of the president. At this stage, it was just before Nadal and Federer decided they wanted to come back on the board. But there was this movement to try to remove the Chris Cormodi or Chris Cormodi. I never pronounce his name right, but he he was seemingly a very popular uh, leader of the of the tour. And they they there was this movement. Djokovic was behind it, but not just him. The other players to bring in a new a new guy at the top and. Now, and it led to Nadal and, and Federer coming back on, as I said, and now they've done that, and they're actually going to have two guys, two Italian guys, Gaudenzi and Cavelli. These guys are they're both going to, uh, it's going to be like uh, the two titles, CEO, and I don't remember the other title, but it's going to uh-huh. be sort of dual, dual leadership at the top. That'll be interesting. There was a stage at the ATP in the 90s where they had two pretty prominent leaders, CEO and COO, in Mark Miles and Larry Scott, two Americans who did a fine job. But it wasn't structured quite the way this will be. And, and this might be an interesting period. And I do think having Djokovic, having all three of the big three together in the room again uh, will be very helpful because Nadal and Federer were hearing things, but they didn't really know firsthand what was going on. They might have heard it from players on the board and not just from Novak, and it might have been coming secondhand, not inaccurate information. But now I think there's a chance with these two new leaders uh, it could be a really something of great significance for the tour to have the, it's sort of a revitalization that, that could be very important politically for the game. Yeah, I, I would like to see some some experimentation with with how tennis markets itself. And... Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think they may be open to it, by yeah. the way. I think that may be one of the products of it. What, what kind of things are you hoping to see? I think that there's a, a pretty big access problem access to the athletes and and as as a journalist uh, you could probably speak to this but without a a centralizing force there seems to be kind of a lack of there seems to be at least a lot of obstacles in storytelling and tennis has relied on self-marketing for the players in order to to build new stars and i think they need to take a more hands-on approach to building new stars that's 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 a very that's a very good case you're making. I, I I don't disagree. Whether they're going to be able to bring that about, I don't know. I think the marketing could be quite good. I, I think we're talking about two different things. I think they can market these players very effectively in a variety of ways. The question is going to be whether print media ever. I think what's happened now is that that uh, television has really taken over, and I think it's much more difficult now for print journalists to get the access that you just mentioned to players. And I mean, this has been a, an, a, a this has been going on in tennis for a long time, though it's not it's not brand new. And uh, reporters like John Feinstein has written so many golf books. You know, and when he was around tennis, he complained that he managed to get pretty good access, but he felt like tennis players were not as accessible at the top as golfers or players that he interviewed in other sports. Whether that changes, I don't know. But I think this this overarching marketing notion there i think there's some real possibilities even that may not involve the print journalists but where where these players are they get greater prominence worldwide and the sport benefits as a result let's go back to to some on the court stuff real quick then i'll let you go uh let's 
let's hit on some players that we maybe haven't discussed in, in kind of a more rapid-fire fashion. Uh, let's bring up a couple players that I think were kind of secondary characters after the the big three in the prior decade. And by the way, Andy Murray deserves a little bit more than uh, outside the big three resi- uh, designation. He does. Because, he does. Yeah, absolutely. He, and he, now, now, let's face it, the other yeah. three are all, never mind what happened to Andy and coming back from the hip surgeries and... They're better than he was. He'd be the first to admit it when he retires. Having said uh-huh. that, he went all the way to 2012. So this was a very critical decade for him as we look back on the decade. And he still hadn't won a major, and it was nagging at him. And, you know, Federer's beaten him in the Australian final in 2010 and beat him in the 2012 Wimbledon final. And, I mean, Andy, Andy was like, it was sort of like Yvonne Lendl, you know, losing all these major finals. And sure enough, yep. Lendl was in his corner. And he broke, he broke, the, he snapped it finally by winning the U.S. Open over Djokovic in 2012, having won the Olympics earlier that summer. And then he went on to win two Wimbledons, and he beat Djokovic in the first of those Wimbledon finals too in 2013. So yes, he deserves a lot of credit. Not to mention ending year at number one in 2016 yeah. when he won his second Wimbledon. So Andy, de- it deserves very high marks because these guys were always in his way. It was always the obstacle of overcoming yeah. Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, who were all better players in, in, in different ways. And yet, to not only win one, but to get three in his collection. And hopefully he can still make an impact in his comeback. But regardless of that, he, he's, he's, he's got himself into the Hall of Fame for, yes. for sure, based on, on, on his achievements. And it was a remarkable decade for him. And, uh, you know, he ended up winning a, you know, a couple of Olympics and, a, and a, two Olympics and, a, and, a, and two Wimbledons and the U.S. Open. Pretty remarkable stuff. No bigger victim of, of the era that he played in than, than uh, Andy Murray um, with, with Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Now, equaling Murray's slam t- count is uh, Stan Wawrinka. Yeah. Lasting yeah. memories from the decade, it's, it's big match Stan showing up when it matters. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Stanimal label, as they call them, you know, and he just, he brute force physically and the, that, that explosive, spectacular one-handed backhand of his, but Stan just improved so much as a match player during the decade. I think he got some good breaks. For instance, 2014, when he won his first in Australia, he beat, he won a fair and square phenomenal five-setter over Djokovic in the quarters, but then... Nadal got hurt in the final. Regardless, Stan was there, and he won the title. Then the magnificent victory over Djokovic in the 2015 French, where he also beat Federer in the quarters, and finally U.S. Open in 16, where he beats Djokovic again. So in the three major finals that he played, he beat Nadal once and Djokovic twice. The thorn in his side always was Federer, but at least he got Roger in that quarter at Roland Garros that Mm -hmm. one time, so that was nice. And just a great decade, and he joined forces with Federer to win the Davis Cup as well. So what a what a decade for Stan Wawrinka. Juan Martín Del Potro coming in after the 2009 U.S. Open triumph, probably thought that he was going to be a bigger part of this decade, but injuries kind of held him back. Regardless, he, he had his moments, and uh, someone who has really been embraced by, by the fans. Unfortunately, his body has not allowed him to reach his full potential. No, but it was nice, as you said, to see something of a resurgence and a revitalization in Del Potro, and he's still going to be playing again this coming year. We hope for great things from him then, but 
It was great to see him back in the finals of the U.S. Open. And one of the more poignant moments to me was when he lost to Djokovic in the 2018 final, and he was pretty much in tears in his, in his chair, and Djokovic came over to console him. It reminded me of, of, of uh, when, when uh, Novak lost to, Stan, lost to Stan Wawrinka in the French final and how nice he was to him. But my point being that, that it, was, it was just such an emotional occasion for Juan Martin to be back in that final. And he desperately, dearly wanted to win a second crown. Didn't work out, but I, I hope we may still see some big things from him ahead. That 2009 U.S. Open is one of those things that permanently etched in a back yep, corner yep. of my mind, the five-set win over Federer. He's getting ready for Australia, so he, he's not done yet. Right. Right. Not at all. Not at all. Yep. He'll still a threat. The question is, if it, can his body hold up? You know, can he can he sustain it? He keeps stopping and starting. It's not his fault. Right. Uh, but it's not too late by any means. And he's such a great physical force. And as we know, he's got one of one of the great forehands of all time. And when he starts cranking that forehand up, it's 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 as big a forehand as the sport has seen. And one of the great forehands. Period. Not just in terms of power, but just great technique. He can hit winners, but he can go long periods without missing it as well. Last one is David Ferrer, the best player, at least in, in my lifetime, to never win a slam and uh, really percolated at the beginning of this decade. Yeah, he did. He did. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned that French, that epic French Djokovic-Nadal uh, semifinal. And, of course, Ferrer was in the final that year. Yep. And that was, that was a, probably his best opportunity. On the other hand, what kind of an opportunity is when you're playing your co- countryman, Rafa Nadal, at Roland Garros in the final? So he didn't really have much of a chance in that match. But you're right. He was industrious. He was enterprising. He was a great competitor. He didn't have any one great strength, but he had a terrific return of serve terms of being able to get balls back into play and his return of serve stats were always in that top three you know for return games one and and return points one and break points converted all those categories on return of serve he always did really well never had a great serve but what a competitor and very well liked uh, by all of his colleagues across the board very well liked by by me just how just because of how how he played and uh he yeah, was, no, listen, he would, you know what he gave fans? I, I agree yeah. with you. And he had great, great value for money because you knew you were going to get such a great effort from him. And he blended well. Tended to be fun to watch him play a Federer or a Djokovic and a Nadal. Didn't matter what the opponent's style was. You knew what he was going to give out there, and you knew how hard he was going to work, and you knew he was going to make them uh, give everything that they had to beat him. No doubt. All right, well, the, uh, the next decade is fast approaching. Not sure exactly uh, when this chat is going to be released, but certainly before New Year's. And uh, we wish uh, everyone a good New Year's. Steve, wish you a good New Year's. And uh, yeah, you too, Gil. And, and, and let me just say for your yeah. listeners, it's always a pleasure to come on and talk tennis with you. And particularly enjoyable for me because I'm 67 now and you're a good deal younger. <laughs> and it just gives me a different point of view. But I think by and large, we, we see things in a very similar way. And if you share my passion for the game so i'm happy to come on your show anytime yeah well i i really appreciate that it's it's always so nice to have you on the listeners love it i love it and uh i know this for a fact uh, i would not have done a good job of uh looking back on the decade without without you to be a part of it well thank you very much for that it was great fun okay well we'll do it again soon okay take care thanks steve take care bye